Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I hope everybody's paying attention today because we have a friend calling in from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and his name is Ronald Olivier, and he has a book out about redemption, and we're going to talk to him about his life and his experiences in the Angola prison in Louisiana. So welcome to the show, Ronald. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I mean, when you dive into this, I'm a firm believer of good people can make decisions that affect their life. It takes them in the wrong direction, you know, and you just don't know till you know, and you don't think about those decisions a lot of time. So tell me a little bit about your lifestyle and, and what got you put in the Angola prison in Louisiana. I'm a native of New Orleans, Louisiana. I grew up in a a uh, very poverty-stricken area. I can remember my mother um, moved from the seven ward, from the seven ward to the eight ward. Um, New Orleans is separated into different wards, if you would. And I can remember um, when she moved. This is a real nice neighborhood. I I can remember on the porch feeding the birds. But but something happened um, about in the late late eighties. There was a big transition in the neighborhood. It was the crack epidemic, and it came and, and literally destroyed our neighborhood. And so with it came um, a lot of violence. I can remember when that took place, the birds wouldn't even show up there anymore. And around the same transition that was taking place um, prior to it, my father, who I stayed with on weekends and summers and um, some holidays, um, had a real great relationship with my father. Oh, it was like everything to me. And um, during this period of time, he had left. He left and moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And, uh, and my little 15, 16-year-old mind couldn't grasp that. And I was very hurt. I felt abandoned. And so consequently, um, I turned to the streets and what was happening around me. And the streets began to father me. I began to learn the street game and run with absolutely wrong crowd. But they became my, my heroes. That's who I looked up to. That's who I wanted to be, a um, drug dealer. I was robbing people. I was stealing cars, all type of negativity. And it, and it, it surrounded me. I, um, my neighborhood was very violent. It was common to hear gunshots and um, see people with gunshot wounds or see people dead in the street. That was very common. And to hear police sirens day and night, very common in my neighborhood. So that became normal to me. So the abnormal became normal to me and I got really just accustomed to that. You know, I thought really that's how I was supposed to be. And I can remember later, my dad sent for me probably about five, six months later in, in Jacksonville. And man, it was so quiet that it disturbed me. You know, I didn't hear gunshots, didn't hear the sirens, and I thought something was wrong. And so the normal was abnormal to me. And so I ended up going back to New Orleans, what I was accustomed to. And consequently, I found myself in an altercation with a guy. We had jumped him, and the next time we saw him was Christmas Day, and 
and I was outnumbered, and he was with about six other guys, and man, shots rang out, and man, two people ended up in a pool of blood. One died and one survived, and it was by my hand. I had pulled the trigger. And so this was at, at the age of 16. So I found myself in a juvenile facility first. I can remember um, I thought like other times I had been in trouble that my mother come sign me out. You know, I had been into the juvenile bureau for things like assault, um, simple robbery, um, theft. And I called my mother. She would come down and she would sign me out or we'd get some some um, adult to come sign me out. And I thought that's what that was, was going to happen this time. But Mama couldn't sign me out right there. So I found myself, man, um, end up facing the death penalty because the juvenile courts trans transferred me to the adult courts and they charged me with first degree murder. And there my journey begins in this unbeknown world um, that I wasn't accustomed to. So when you, you know, you hear these stories a lot, you know, young people pulling that trigger. I mean, what was that like after you pulled the trigger? Not taking out account that someone died, someone survived, just taking out of account. How did you feel after that? Afterwards, I guess I was, it was like before that I was like in, in some type of zone. And then like afterwards, I snapped out and realized where I was. And there was a police station like two blocks away. So my mind is thinking, man, I got to get away. I got to get away. And I never forget because I had guys try to pull me off the front of the bus. I was on the first step of the bus and I turned around shooting and shot them and walked on. The, I, I had um, my money in one hand and a gun still in the other hand. And I walked to the back of the bus and sat down. And then when I realized what was going on and where I was, I began to um, hit the emergency um, window to jump out the window and just run. And I never forget a guy on the front of the bus said, man, don't don't run. He said, a bus driver going to continue his route, man. Those guys were trying to rob you. They're trying to snatch you off the bus. And sure enough, the bus driver continued his route. And when he turned the corner, at that corner, there were two people. Everybody looked up and saw there was two people in the pool of blood. And he continued his route. And all I'm thinking about now at that time is, is getting away. I got to get away. I got to get away. And I think later, probably that night, I remember like yesterday, I was, I had ended up by a cousin house and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, I never forget. I asked myself this question in the mirror. I said, who are you? What have you done? What have you become? And I started crying and then I started laughing. Then I was crying and laughing. So it was almost like a hysterical moment that was going on with me, you know, after that. Because the feelings, when you think about feelings and you being, you said 16 years old, you're, you're coming out of it. But a lot of people don't realize that their subconscious is being programmed, you know, from the time they're born through their teens. And at a certain point, <clears throat> when you get a certain age that, you know, that programming kind of ceases and then you start, at, you know, you start responding to things innately with your unconscious bias based on your experiences. So a lot of people don't realize that. And when you, you know, and you think you're, I guess, how do I put this is you're living your life in this lane, right? And then until something you have a traumatic experience, that's when a lot of people don't know what to do, you know, when they have this traumatic experience because they're so young, they're still going through this programming process as a human being. Right. 
So it makes it very complex that I don't think is looked at. And I also had this realization yesterday when we were talking about organizations or whatever it is, whether it's government, maybe a, a religious organization, maybe it's a community. And I think a lot of times people are put into situations. If you're thinking about rules, let's say you have to follow rules and those rules get more intense because they want to control the situation, whatever entity it is, whether it's a community, whatever. Same thing, you know, in the community, if you're paying attention to survive and you're forgetting in those situations, you forget about yourself. You don't relish any value for yourself or create any value for yourself. So when you run out of that that landscape in that room, you look for these feelings of what makes me feel good here, five minutes. What makes me feel good here, five minutes. And it may not be good. It may be on the dark side. But a lot of people don't realize that. Have you ever thought about that kind of scenario about how you know situations can move people a certain direction? Yes, definitely. Um, I think any kid, um, wherever they grow up at, you know, their 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 greatest teacher is not what they hear as opposed to what they see. And so I'm being taught a lot of things in the streets and that dark side, which you're talking about and how to survive and being really programmed to think that I have to do this to survive. I have to carry a gun all the time. I have to be tough. I can't be the prey. I have to be the one who prey upon someone else. And so um, it, it puts you in that that mindset and puts you like subconsciously what you're talking about, you know, um, and really train you in in how to respond, so to speak. And so I I found myself in that situation there. And how did did family respond? Family, totally different, you know. And so I was a totally different person at home to where um, after I committed this crime, they couldn't even believe that I'd done it. And so a totally different person in the street. And so didn't have a family where family goes to prison or anything. My family didn't do things like that. And and so here I am. They were, I think my mother for a while, her response was that um, I was way in Florida with my dad. You know, she was embarrassed, you know, to even let anybody know that I was up, that I was locked up. My, my, my sister, my siblings was very sad that I was gone. And so um, it just created this this ripple effect of hurt and pain on both sides, on on my side, on with the family, and even the victim side, and all that the victim family went through. So when you were tried as an adult, you got sentenced. When you first had to go to Angola prison, what was that like? How old were you? I was about 18, but backing up at the trial, there was a pivotal moment that happened to me at the trial. Okay. While I'm on trial, I'm, I'm 17 years old. Now I'm facing the death penalty. And so up until this moment, everything was really like a joke to me. I was very optimistic, man. I'm going home. I won't be here long. You know, this going to be, this going to pass. I'll be back on the streets again. And, you know, and so while the jury was deliberating and they brought me in a holding tank all alone by myself, four concrete concrete walls in the cell. I can still hear the cell slamming and he locking it, locking it, the guard locking it and leaving me there alone. And that's where everything got real. Cause I was facing the death penalty at that time. And I began to think, man, 12 people who don't know anything about me is about to make a decision whether I live or die. I was like, man, I don't want to die. In that moment, man, I could hear my mother's voice. My mother was 
a real praying woman, real godly woman. Um, always went to church and always prayed for me. And I can I can hear her voice saying, um, she said, "Baby, if you ever in trouble, that I can't get you out, and you make you sure you call on the name of Jesus." And man, I just did that. I heard that. I did that. I cried out to God. I got on my knees and I said this prayer. You know, I I made a deal with God. Some people say, you don't make a deal with God, but I made a deal. And I said, Lord, I said, if you don't let these people kill me, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And for the first time in my life, I experienced the peace of God. I was, man, I was just calm. There was an assurance in me that I was going to be all right. So I go out and the jury comes back with a guilty verdict of the lesser offense, which is the responsive verdict. Second degree murder. Now, second degree murder carried a mandatory life sentence without benefits of parole or probation. In layman's terms, that means I die in prison. I'll never get out. And so um, while I'm sitting there receiving that sentence, I didn't I didn't know the consequence of that. You know, I didn't know it carried a life sentence. But meanwhile, I, I like to tell a story like this, man, during that moment in that holding tank, man. I got two life sentences, one from the state, and I believe the other one from God. He gave me a life sentence because my life changed from that moment. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I went about, you know, going through Angola, um, I still looked the same, act the same, talk the same. But the difference was, um, and I believe, and I count that to what happened to me in the cell, is that, man, I still, I felt bad about talking how I talk or doing the things that I did. You know, I, that was just conviction that set up on me. And, man, I just wasn't comfortable with it. And so very uncomfortable in a, in a life I was living. Now, things that, that didn't matter, you know, before now matter. And so here I am on my way. I never forget on the bus going down this 20-mile-long snake road to Angola. And I'm thinking about all the stories I heard about Angola. Angola was once labeled the, the bloodiest prison in the nation. They got that name for the violence and the blood that was spilled there. Um, someone was always getting jerked or stabbed up um, and killed there and even raped. And so they preyed upon young men. I'm 18 years old, didn't have a string of hair in my face. Um, I was I was 5'11", 131 pounds, looked like I was about 12 years old. <laughs> and so here I, here I am, and I'm like, man, I made a decision on that bus that, man, I'm going in this place of man, and I'm coming out of man, whether I'm coming out walking or I'm coming out in a box dead. I'm going to protect my manhood at all times. So that was my mindset. But amazingly, man, um, I believe God was was orchestrating this whole plan with my life. And he placed me around people that was willing to help me and not hurt me. Man, some of the greatest men of God I've met was in prison, you know, and these was pastors and my mentors and man, guys who was guiding me the, the right way to get in school, to get a GED and all these positive programs that they had and just pushing me, just pushing me on to become a better person. And man, I believe God blessed me with that. Just sent me around the right people, man. And um, man, my life began to change. They began to mentor me and 
taught me how important it was to uh, read my Bible, of, of studying, of, of um, going to church and, and really um, developing a prayer life. And, and man, as I did that, man, a lot of things began to change. My mind began to be renewed. And I start to see life from a different perspective. And that launched me into the Bible college. Um, there was a Bible college there, um, Baptist Theological Seminary, an extension center established there where there was professors that came from the outside and did their lectures and exams or what have you, like any other college. And um, we had um, our actual graduation, you know, with caps and gowns and where we could invite family to the graduation. Um, all the faculty comes, the the president, and, and they have this ceremony. And after four years, I had graduated with a, um, a bachelor's degree in Christian ministry. And so um, I found myself after that um um, you're you're um, an inmate minister, so you're allowed to minister, and they give you a certain area, and that's your job to be an inmate minister, just assist people with um, their religious belief or what have you. And man, I did that, and then soon, you know, as the Bible college continued to grow, and it and ministers begin to stack upon each other, ministers within every area of the prison, and completely changed the outcome and how you know violent it was, you know there. You know, you you only hear something now here, you know, very seldom you hear uh, even of a fight, <laughs> you know, a mm-hmm. simple fight. You know, it was completely changing the, the culture of the prison. And as they grew and they continued to stack up on each other, the warden then on Warden Burrow came, come up with an idea, what I believe was a God idea to send out missionaries. And so um, after you graduate, you had the opportunity to to go to another prison in Louisiana and assist the chaplain and also pastor a church. And so I went to another prison and um, assist the chaplain and pastor a church, which which launched me into and pushed me into this area of leadership that really changed my life. And had a great time there, did a lot of great positive things that impact some people's lives. I can remember there, one of the things I, I done without a credit to home, probably me coming home, was start a prayer, a prayer meeting. Put out a fly concerning a prayer meeting. Um, if you've been bought out of court or you can't get back in court and you're looking to go home, man, bring all your paper and legal work to the altar. I believe there's a judge greater than the judge. Mm-hmm. And we brought it before God and just prayed. And man, so many guys went home. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
we rejoiced. And, and later my turn came and I ended up um, back in Angola after about three and a half years on a missionary journey. I ended up back there and amazingly, the law changed in 2012. The United States Supreme Court came down with a ruling in Miller versus Alabama that said it was unconstitutional to give a juvenile a mandatory life sentence. Said it violated our um, our constitutional rights of uh, the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment. It said a juvenile should have some type of meaningful opportunity for freedom, and it broke down the the parts of the brain in the juvenile that's not even developed on um, the frontal lobe and that part of the brain that helps you appreciate risk and consequences. And it talked about how we shouldn't be treated as adults in that manner. And when it came down with that ruling in 2012, that, that deemed my sentence illegal. And so I went back to court on a motion to correct the legal sentence and man got re-sentenced amazingly during this time when i go to court um i remember my lawyers kind of nervous nervously coming telling me um uh, man there's someone here man um the victim's sister showed up so you might have some some victim opposition and we know that victim opposition carried a lot of weight you know a lot of times that depended on whether you would be released or not or, or get some type of relief or not mm -hmm. Man, I can remember when I first came in the courtroom, the lady on the front row was just staring at me. She was just staring. I looked at her and didn't want to step back and make her feel uncomfortable. I'm looking already scary because I'm handcuffed and shackled in the orange jumpsuit. So I kept looking to wear and just checking and looking out my peripheral just to see her. And she just was staring. And when he came and told me, I was like, no, that's not his sister. That's his mother. Because I remembered her face out of everybody in the courtroom. I can't even really remember the, um, the face of um, my lawyer. But I remember the face of the mother, uh, man, this mother who was on the stand crying because I had taken her son away. From her. And when I had that experience in that holding tank and later got a prayer life, man, I prayed for her. So I prayed for her more than I prayed for anybody. And I always had the desire to one day to have a conversation with her, just a dialogue with her and just tell her how remorseful I was, how sorry I was and hoping that she forgive me. And so I saw that opportunity in court when he come to him, I said, man, I said, um, get with the DA and find out if I can talk to her. So he went over there, got with the DA, DA talked to her, come back and said, look, she said she don't want to talk. What she's going to say, she's going to say it on the stand. And behold, um, the court, my court date was set, set back to the following month. And which gave me some time to pray, you know, and just keep her lifted up. And behold, when I came back, she offered that I talk to her. And um, we had this dialogue. I was handcuffed and shackled and she's behind me and I had to turn around. And I'll never forget when I turned around and looked up in her eyes. Just the, man, the most difficult, hardest conversation I have ever had with a human being. When I turned around and look at her, her arms was folded and she was just staring at me. And I broke the silence. I said, ma'am, I said, I take full responsibility for the death of your son. And when I said that, she took a deep breath and she exhaled and her arms relaxed and she leaned toward me. And I said, ma'am, I said, I have no excuses. I said, it was senseless, very idiotic of me, a 
very bad decision I made. Um, I said, all I can ask is that you find somewhere in your heart to forgive me. She said, man, she said, I don't hate you. And she said, I forgive you. And I believe you deserve a second chance. Now, while we having this dialogue, there's no dry eye. Both of us are crying. It's very emotional. And she began to talk to me. She said, um, she said, what I didn't know was when my son had passed away, um, that he had a son. And she said, I, I took him and raised him. And she said, man, he forgives you. She said, I wanted him to come today and meet you today, you know. And I told her, I said, ma'am, um, I said, I'd love to meet him. I said, if I get out, I said, I'd love to meet him. And she said this here. She said, not if you get out, when you get out. And so very awesome moment there, um, very emotional moment. But when she said she forgave me, man, it was like the shackles and the handcuffs that were on me came off. It didn't even matter to me how the proceedings of the court went after that because this was the this was the pinnacle. This was greater. My greatest desire was to meet her and have that conversation with that she hopefully forgive me. You know, that was greater than me going home. And um she got up later on the stand and echoed what she said in private on the record and Mm, I got re-sentenced, you know, everybody clapped. Um, it was a, was an awesome time there. And um, I later went off for parole in 2018 of November and, and made parole and was discharged November the 30th of 2018. I walked up out of the gates of Angola after serving 27 summers. 27 years. So that would have made you how old? 43. 43. When you think about your connection to God and what what's your lineage of the family? Like grandmothers, uh, mom and dad, grandmothers, you know, down the line, was there any type of connection to spirituality or in that kind oh, of? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Grandparents. I know for sure. Um, I even had an opportunity to meet my, on my dad's side, my great grandmother who died at the age of 93, met her very spiritual woman, met her sister, um, who died at 104. And so, um, my, my family on both my dad and my mom's side was, was, was very connected to God, man. Um, and that's what helped me have that, that type of awareness, you know, um, even though I wasn't serious about it or didn't really have a real relationship with God, because in, in my household, whether my dad's house or my mom's house, you didn't have a choice. You was going to church on Sunday. You didn't, mm -hmm. It wasn't optional. Church wasn't optional and school wasn't optional. And so um, when I was on by my dad's house, we was going to church or when I was by my mom's house, we was going to church. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of spirituality. Yeah, obviously in Louisiana area. I mean, because I think it's where the where a lot of the the families and they came from. They came from a spiritual place. I think there's a lot to that connection. I almost think it's like a grid, you know, and in that lineage and that bloodline, you know, that's passed down and passed down. It's this word that came into play, and you were able to utilize that, you know, for yourself to change your life. Yes. What did you do first when you got out? One of the first things I done on. I wanted to do, I had a great desire to do, was take a bath. I had taken a shower for 27 years, just wanted to sit in the tub, mm -hmm. you know. And so that was very interesting. But um, I first began to work. Um, I came home into a job, a mayor of a, of a town, also a pastor. He was the chaplain when I went on a missionary journey who I got connected with. Um, he, 
He gave me a job. I was working for the town of Simsport, and he put me on staff at his church as a, um, as a youth minister. And, um, man, my life just began to take off from that. He gave me a place to stay, had a little, um, a little module home, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a living room, nice big living room, nice big kitchen, you know. And it was great because I really wanted to live on my own because I didn't know how that felt. I didn't know. I never experienced that. You know, when I went to prison, I was living with my mother. Yeah. So I didn't even know how it looked to pay a bill. Mm-hmm. And so, man, um, just wanted that, that experience for myself. And I had a girlfriend at the time um, and she had a home, but I didn't want to live with someone just coming home and, and not married to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so now we are married. We'll be married in April about five years. Um, November 30th, it'll make five years that I've been home. And we have a little son together. Um, I got a three-year-old little son. He'll be four in, in January. And, man, one of the greatest blessings, man, and I, I could ever have is just, just watching him grow home over and being a part of his life. And so um, I went from there, made a transition from Simsport working on um, the warden, who was was the former warden of Angola, Burl Kane. He called me. Um, he had now was in Mississippi and the commissioner over the departments of corrections. So he's over all the prisons. So he calls me to be the um, director of chaplaincy, the head chaplain in Mississippi State Penitentiary. And I went, took my family there, man, did some great things there. And just recently made the transition from there. I think I stayed there, what, two and a half years, made the transition from there um, to to Baton Rouge in April. And now I work for um, the Louisiana Parole Project. It was a project the same project that when I discharged from home, I went through it. Their program, they help they help men who have done long periods of time, over two decades. They help them to make a transition into society. Complete wraparound service. They help them with housing, with clothing, uh, getting a job, with food. And then there's classes they take on to help them get acclimated. Things like technology, because guys done over 20 years they don't know anything about a cell phone mm-hmm. you know things like that and 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 credit cards and you know how to make the transition from just using cash to cards now and self-checkout this whole thing they bring you through this process and help you re-enter society and man that was a blessing to me and when i came back this week they um hired me as a client advocate and so I help guys um make a transition from prison now with my experience and also help them get jobs. Nice. Do they ever talk about anything? You know, you talk about that programming. And I, I talk to a lot of neuroscientists and they say you can reset your mind in nine weeks, but you mm. have to have somewhat of an overhaul of positivity. Do they, you know, because like every day I get up and I say certain things over and over yeah. and over. Do they talk about the power of the mind and, and telling yourself you are confident or you are good or whatever it is that can build exactly. up? And they talk about exactly. that. Exactly. And that's that's some biblical principles there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the Bible speaks about that a lot, mm-hmm. um, about the power of words. Death and life is in the power of the tongue. And how important it is for not only that um, other people, you be around other people that speak in positive, but that you say some positive acclamations over yourself. 
mm-hmm. you know, and have this positive outlook on yourself and, and say it and hear yourself saying, you know, very important. And especially because they stay with us at least a month, you know, um, they go past a month if we see that they need more, some more time with us. It depends on the person and how well they are coming along and they'll go to their final destination where they're gone. And it's important because we, we check out where they're going. You know, mm-hmm. what type of environment are you going into? Are you going back into the same environment that, you know, got you into that? You know, and so we try, if, if it's a situation like that, we try to redirect and help them here to, to start over in a new place, a new environment where no one knows you, you know, because mm-hmm. that's very important, you know, because you get around the same people doing the same thing. You'll end up doing them on them. The Bible talks about that. It says evil communication will corrupt the good spirit. You know, mm-hmm. you can be real good, just hang around the wrong thing too long and you become it. Mm-hmm. And so that's very important part of our program. Interesting. Well, I mean, the the thing is, is really the difference between the light and the dark is just a thought process. Yes. You know, and whichever way you perpetuate that process, it can become stronger, it can become weaker, whatever it is. But I think, too, to your point is good you look to find where these people go, because if you've if you've been there and you've established a barometer, you've established an impression. And even though you may have of not thinking about those thoughts anymore, if you get around that again, exactly. it can send you right back to that impression. So easy. Yeah. And our program was established like um, the Louisiana Parole Project was established in 2016. We've had over 480 clients, um, probably about 500 right now. And it's been reported that we have a less than 2% recidivism rate. And so that translates to saying that people that that come through our, our program is more than likely not to go back to prison. They mm-hmm. become successful um, citizens. They hardworking, taxpaying citizens and impact their community wherever they go. You know, I don't know if this has ever been done, too. And I think I think if our government and, and people in that make these decisions can understand the mindset and maybe try to eliminate some of these narratives that they put around someone who's coming out. Yes, man, that's that's exactly. And so that's what we that's what we are trying to do. And we have had a lot of um success with the political realm and seeing they seeing our success and so they be have become comfortable with letting people go on parole, especially if any of our attorneys may represent them and they know that they're coming through our program you know and some people um they go on there and go for parole and the parole board will recommend that they have parole only if they come through our program they see the success of it and man that's pivotal man and changing that narrative and that labeling you know because it defeats the purpose mm-hmm. you know it puts the person right back on the track Mm-hmm. Are doing the same thing, you know. If they can't get a job, if they denied opportunity of employment because there's they are ex offender, you know, they're gonna do what they know to do to get money, you know, what they used to do. Yeah, that'll run them right back into that circle. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna spend all this money to make you better, but we're gonna remind you who you are so you don't forget and stay in that lane, which I don't doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Very hypocritical. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. <laughs> uh, you know, right. it's like what what's going on here? I, I don't know. Right. Those are things I think about, you know, and think about people, and you know, I just think we just need to look at how people are affected by things differently, 
and quit yeah. trying to put people in categories based on who they are, what they are, and so forth, because that, that doesn't make any sense either at the end of the day. No, no. Well, I think it's a big redemption story. You, you thought about pitching this as a pitching the book as a movie? Um, yes, sir. <laughs> Definitely have. And got some offers already, you know, um, it's picking up some traction. So not only as a movie, as a series. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think I think sooner or later it's gonna come. I thought about that before I wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that it, it's gonna eventually become a movie. Yeah. Because you know? it's so, hard to find real life redemption stories. Right. You know, and I think right. that's a big deal and, and can be a put out a good impression where other people yep. can learn from your process. Yes. You know, yes, definitely. and if we want to find the book, where can we find the book? It's on Amazon. Um, you can order it on Amazon. It's on and hardback. And also, um, it's on, um, audio. You can order it there. Gotcha. And the book is just reminding me 27 summers, my journey to freedom forgiveness redemption during my time in angola prison so i think it's a yes, great sir. story redemption and i appreciate you coming on the show yes, and sir. yeah if i'm in baton rouge i'll look you up and this has been ronald olivier and i am john edmonds cosma the ceo of bang productions thank you hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.